In recent years, students have come under fire from the media. Our generation, critics claim, is predisposed to echo chamber thinking, closed-mindedness and so-called cancel culture. Given that our cultural diet is fed by polarising social media algorithms and clickbait headlines, this is perhaps inevitable. Yet my experience of tutorials, seminars and pitching meetings assures me that students are more capable of constructive debate than ever. So, here at Discourse, we're setting the record straight. Every month, we'll be discussing controversial, topical stories with members of the academic community, no dissing allowed. Through candid, agreeable discussion, we'll shed light on the nuances of each argument. Who knows, we might even change minds in the process. Welcome everyone to the first episode of Discourse, the all-new current affairs and opinion podcast run by The Saint. It's fair to say that the news has provided its fair share of controversy this week. We're speaking on Friday the 29th of September and I'm looking forward to discussing it with two very well-qualified guests. Um, So first of all, we have Alex Beckett, co-editor-in-chief of The Saint and former Viewpoint editor. Alex, could you open the floor with a controversial opinion to get the ball rolling? I can indeed. I think my controversial but perhaps banal opinion would be that one of the greatest tragedies to have taken place in modern Britain is the disappearance, in my eyes at least, of the Skips Crisp. A worthy candidate, thank you. And we're also going to be hearing from Jazz Sykes, a former features and current viewpoint writer for The Saint. And my controversial but slightly banal opinion is that no respecting person over the age of 12 should be eating cereal for breakfast. Serious thoughts indeed, guys. Thank you. Um, And on that note, we're going to move on to discussing our first story of the week, which is definitely controversial. Um, Alex, do you like to take the floor for this one? Absolutely. So the story that I've come in with this week is regarding HS2. For those who might not be acquainted with it, HS2 is a high-speed rail project uh, to be built from London, passing through Birmingham, and in an ideal world, arriving at Manchester. The problem with this is that it is an extremely costly business, and its costs seem ever to be increasing. There are some quick statistics uh, that the Times have reported this week that £280 million has been spent on consultants. The overall cost has tripled to more than £100 billion uh, in terms of the budget that's been set aside for this project. There are more than 40 executives on over £150,000 per annum. And the chief executive of this project is himself on £640,000 a year, which obviously, given the time that this project is taking and its seemingly poor results so far, is provoking quite a lot of anger, not only within the Conservative Party, but also across uh, the country as a whole. The reason for this, I suppose, is that the kind of the, found, the, the fundamental motivation behind this project was to link the north of England to the south better than is presently the case. And we know how much of a kind of hot potato that is politically. Many in the north think that they've been left isolated by the centralised powers in London. And it's for this reason that there's so much frustration from the likes of leaders in Leeds and Manchester that Rishi Sunak's supposed and alleged uh, plan to potentially curtail the leg of the journey from Birmingham to Manchester it is frustrating them so much. Do you think part of the issue here is that so many politicians at this point have vested so much on completing the track that the prospect of axing at this point isn't really an option for them, even though this is turning into just an endless money pit? 
um, which arguably we're just not going to be able to afford to complete. Well, absolutely. And I think it's important, as I said, the Tory party, which is 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 the party that has been kind of in power for the for the I suppose the majority, if not the entirety of this project um, process so far, is totally split over this. Now, there's been a precedent set by uh, David Cameron, Boris Johnson, Theresa May, Liz Truss for a very brief period of time, that this was not going to be cancelled or curtailed in any way. Sunak, in many ways, just as with his net zero propositions recently, is somewhat putting his head above the parapet in being a prime minister who's actually seemingly willing to challenge the, the received idea that this needs to be completed, whatever the cost may be. But we can see uh, that, for example, Lord Haig, former leader of the Tory party, is very openly expressing his opinion in, in, in the media recently, um, or has been expressing his, his opinion in the media recently, that this should have been cancelled a long, long time ago. Albeit, it's much easier for him to say that as a man who no longer leads the Conservative Party. Yeah. And for Rishi Sunak, he's also MP of Richmond in North Yorkshire and is about to be holding the party conference in Manchester next week. The optics aren't great. It's not an easy situation for him, as you say, as a, as a, as a Northern uh, MP uh, nominally. And there was a moment this week he was on the BBC uh, facing questions about whether he'd ever driven, I believe, on the A64, which is, I, from what I've le- learned, a main road out, out of Yorkshire. Um, However, it doesn't seem to be focusing necessarily on the, the issue at hand. And in those interviews, he, he very much changed the topic on things like potholes, saying that for the majority of people, especially in the North, they are a higher priority for people than HS2. Whether that's true, I'm not sure. I think Rishi Sunak dealt with that interview pretty badly. Needless to say, I thought Anna Jameson, who was the, the um, presenter on BBC Radio Manchester, did a pretty fantastic job of trying to get straight to the point and... Rishi clearly trying to skirt the questions. That being said, I do think that he has a point about whether this kind of massive infrastructure project is really going to be as beneficial to the North as it might have been claimed. Um, As someone who lives in the North myself, um, I do think that a lot of people feel that HS2 is probably just going to get people to London faster rather than really levelling up the North in terms of the kind of investment that the North really needs. But again, that being said, London never has to choose between having its potholes fixed and having a brand new line um, produced. So I think there are questions around whether the Westminster bubble really cares about the North in the way that it might try to try to say that it does. I definitely agree that the axing of HS2 would not align well with the levelling up policy at all. But also, I think people have looked at HS2 maybe through two rose-tinted glasses as something that's just going to magically solve all the problems of the North. Um, People think that it's going to bring massive economic advantages, but if you think about all of the property that's value has effectively plummeted because of its proximity to the line, that's obviously not great. You're devastating the countryside for a line that's ultimately going to be extremely expensive to go on. And actually, would the money have been spent better investing in roads that people do use much more often. Um, I read somewhere that the Dartford crossing in the M25 only cost around 2.6 billion in today's money. And that's used by thousands of people a day and has arguably brought much more tangible uh, benefits than a line that's really going to be used for freight transport, I think, is going to do. And I, I think what you've, what you've mentioned there, Rosie, really broadens the question here. Andy Burnham, the mayor of Greater Manchester, has said that if the line were curtailed between Birmingham and Manchester, he would very happily accept uh, west-east connections across the north instead. 
Now, we hear so frequently about the Northern Powerhouse leveling up uh, equality and equity across the country. And I think we're, we're beginning to see that this question is becoming more divisive insofar as in the BBC interviews we've mentioned, Rishi Sunak was also pushed on his comments when he was in Tunbridge Wells, uh, running for the leadership of the Conservative Party, saying effectively, I changed the formula formulae so that you would be receiving more money in these parts of the country, because as it was, it was being directed to um, suburban areas, let's say. That, that's a major question for the country going forward. Where will our resources be prioritised? The landscape has just changed hugely over the past couple of years from when the last sort of review of this was done. Not only are we now in double digit inflation, but post COVID, the whole attitude towards traveling for work and business has just changed beyond recognition. And actually, there is an argument to say that investing in better broadband networks would be a more effective use of money. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a huge amount of investment that needs to be done in the North. And I understand that obviously the government will be inclined to focus resources in the South because London is such a major economic powerhouse. But the fact is, is that investment or becoming an economic powerhouse requires that initial investment. And in the North, we have a huge amount of skilled labor that is kind of going to waste because there isn't the infrastructure there to support it. Another thing that I would just mention quickly is, do we know why it's costing so much more than its European counterparts? Because one of the main embarrassments of this is that we've just been completely outstripped in places like Germany, where train lines have been built to huge success and been done very cost effectively. Why is it that these costs have been blown so out of control? That, that's, a, that's a fantastic question. And there's been quite a lot of reportage uh, on this in the media as of late. One of the principal problems with building anything in particularly England, but Britain today, is planning costs. Planning costs effectively make constructing anything in Britain much, much more expensive than in any of our continental neighbours. Uh, when you look at their equivalents, France is building longer railroads that take faster trains for a cheaper amount of money. And effectively, England, for this reason, is being left in the dust when it comes to constructing decent public transport, decent railway services, uh, such as HS2, which, which was such a large product, product and is still being described as the biggest in Europe. But the question you have to ask is, when we say biggest in Europe, do we just mean financially? Because it seems to me that that's exactly what we do mean when you look at the costs that are also being spent on consultants and auditing and these kind of required parts of the planning process that in other countries are much easier to circumvent uh, whilst still ensuring a quality product. You are listening to Discourse by the Saint, a bi-weekly reason-led podcast. Each episode, my guests and I tackle three issues of contention, covering everything from international politics to St Andrews University life. Thanks so much to Alex for nominating the problematic U-turns in recent Conservative policy. In the interest of balance, I would also like to discuss the recent developments to Labour's manifesto under Keir Starmer. So for those of you who haven't been keeping up with this story, this is the news that Labour has backtracked on a statement made by Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves in 2021. This originally said that private schools would be stripped of their charitable status under a Labour government. However, the party is now planning to strip private schools of the charitable privileges alone, namely 20% VAT tax exemptions, whilst maintaining their official charity status. Um, the reason I think that this story is important is that, well, there are two major flaws to this policy. First of all, there's the fact that Starmer's latest U-turn sets a really worrying precedent for other charities. 
in saying that the government can just pick and choose which tax exemptions are applied to various charities, you can see how this could lead to a system in which the government will forcibly hold charities accountable to their own belief systems. Um, but on a more practical and, I guess, immediate level, there's also the fact that I don't think this policy is economically viable or even sufficiently researched. Essentially, it's a classic case of populist headline grabbing where Starmer has only really voiced this as one of the policies of the next Labour government. Um, Labour seemed to think that VAT on school fees would raise about one and a half billion pounds annually, but I don't think that this is an accurate figure. There are so many other factors to consider that just aren't really measurable in the current climate. Not only would raising costs for schools enforce the closure of many smaller independent schools, but it would also lead to an influx of students into the state sector. In turn, parents who took their children out of the private system would be left with more disposable income, which could be spent on more luxuries and therefore deepen the class divide. Or they might choose to reduce the amount that they work, given that their jobs are often high stress and offer a poor work-life balance. And this would negatively impact revenue from income tax, but it would also affect the livelihoods of nannies, cleaners, gardeners. So basically this policy would have a much broader impact than I think Starmer is leading people to believe. And it cannot just be measured in this ballpark figure that they seem to have arrived at with very little research. Um, at a more fundamental level, I think it also speaks to a binary division that doesn't exist in the country. I think it's a massive oversimplification to argue that Britain is separated into those who are educated at private schools and those who are educated in the state system. I think it's much more nuanced than that. On the one hand of the spectrum, you get state schools in central London that, due to their catchment areas, are only uh, a viable option for people who are essentially multimillionaires. And then you also have independent schools who cater to minorities, um, language minorities that might not exist otherwise in the public sector. So I'd be interested to hear your guys' thoughts. I mean, I think you're right, Rosie, that it is more nuanced. I think essentially for Labour, what this is, is a policy marking them as a party which is in favour of education being on equal terms for all. And... I do actually find myself, as someone who admittedly was privately educated, finding it more and more difficult to justify the existence of private schools um, in the UK. Um, education is, in my view, the biggest driver of social change. Um, and that's why I don't think it's entirely fair necessary to, necessarily to liken the privatisation of education to the privatisation of other aspects of the economy, like the privatisation of healthcare, because it is undoubtedly true that private schools give their students an advantage. Like, that is what people are paying for. And that isn't often always reflected just in exam results, but it's also about the networking connections that you get and on some level about a kind of confidence, I think, which we have seen in... Um, people in high positions in business, people in high positions in politics. And I do think fundamentally that there should be more equal grounds in terms of education when it is such a driver of social change. Do you not think there's a case, though, for saying that private education should just be made more accessible to more people? Because if you were to expand private education, that would free up space in the state system 
would allow better investment, arguably, in a state system that has no real tangible reason that it would be less good than a private alternative. Well, I mean, the state education, the state system is less good, good because it's less funded. Is that true, though? Because when you look at institutions like the Cook and Wood Youth Prison, which has had so much money pumped into it, it's something ridiculous, like 77 inmates to 350 staff. And yet still completely just doesn't function. And I question whether actually maybe it's more of an operational rather than a financial issue within the state system. Well, I think I think that is true. And it perhaps does operate on a level of bureaucracy. But private schools are businesses and they're run like businesses. The government does not run its state schools like a business. Now, perhaps there is something to be said for restructuring. But fundamentally, when you look at private schools, the facilities that they have, what they're able to offer their students, they would be unable to do that without the money that they're receiving in fees. Well, quite. And I, I think what's really interesting is when you talk about private school facilities, I don't think there's much doubt that private schools do offer to those who attend them a fantastic product. As you say, you leave with networks. You often do, if you look at the statistics, leave with higher exam results as well. And that is the, the professional currency that we all abide by. What I fear is that this labor policy and indeed the, the culture in this country that is developing, which is effectively anti-private school, and it's understandable that it might be anti-private school, but it seems to be only negative in its goals. And I think unless the Labour Party in tandem with this policy can present a different path, they, can't, they cannot expect, uh, firstly, so many people to be priced out of private schooling to go into an already struggling uh, state school system and for that system to keep itself at a decent level. What needs to be considered, and this is only in my opinion, and I'm quite biased as an attendee of a grammar school, is that perhaps we change our education system so it isn't this binary between private and state, but perhaps be based on a model akin to continental countries like France, like Germany, where in fact there are different kinds of schools for students who are going on a different path in life. And unless such a policy is presented, I don't think this, uh, this labour increase of cost of private schools will lead to the results that they, that they wish for. Yeah, and I think it's a really pertinent point that, like, obviously there is a problem with the education system in this country. I don't dispute that at all, but I just don't think that this is the solution. I think, really, by enforcing this VAT charge on schools, you're going to be negatively impacting the schools that operate at the much smaller end of the spectrum, and are maybe catering for, you know, the middle ground, I suppose you could say, of the country, the Eatons, the Harrows the Brighton colleges aren't going to be affected by this in the same way because effectively the costs are compounded the smaller the institution is. So in some ways, I think this could exacerbate the issue even more and deepen the divide if it's going to have any tangible difference at all. Yeah, I mean, you are right to say that many private schools are not the Eatons and Harrows of this world and the fees are much lower. But we are still talking about a minority, a real minority, the vast majority of kids in this country are going to state schools. And although I also have my doubts over whether this policy will raise one and a half billion and whether that one and a half billion would do anything to remedy the appalling uh, state of some of our schools, the fact is, is that it does mark a commitment to the state sector 
where the majority of students are being educated as being the priority of the government in terms of education. And I think I think that is important. We've been looking at a few political stories this week, um, but even if these fail to capture your interest, then there's one story that I know you won't have escaped, and that is concerning Russell Brand. Yeah, so I've been following this story quite closely. I just think it's really fascinating how it's been playing out in the media. So as I'm sure many people will be aware, Russell Brand, one-time comedian and TV star, now kind of self-proclaimed wellness guru and promoter of groundless conspiracy theories, um, was accused earlier uh, last week um, of allegations of sexual assault and emotional abuse. Um, And this was brought to light by the Channel 4 Dispatches programme. And since then, some others have also now come forward. Um, And I think there's a number of ways in which this story is really fascinating. We're now becoming more and more used to seeing these big exposés of powerful figures um, relating to sexual misconduct. Um, And we see how these figures are often cancelled and around this kind of cancel culture that has recently developed. And we've we've begun to see Russell Brand's cancelling in recent days. He's been demonetized on YouTube. And the BBC have gone back through some of his former broadcasts and removed them from his archives. Um, but one of the real issues I think that arises is, is it even possible to cancel anyone nowadays? Especially a figure like Brand and others like him that have been operating on non-mainstream platforms like YouTube and Rumble and promoting views that would normally be considered alt-right views like anti-vax conspiracies and things like that. Um, Now, if Brand doesn't go to prison, he's probably still going to be very popular on these kind of platforms. So I'd be interested to hear your guys' thoughts about, is it really possible to cancel someone? No, I was interested by the fact that Brand is now asking his fans to support him via an annual subscription charge to Rumble. So I suppose in that sense, yeah, he can financially support himself. Uh, given that he has something like 6 million subscribers, you can imagine that he might be able to generate a fair amount of income. Um, I think if we're going to look at this from a a positive viewpoint, I guess you could say that it's encouraging that we are starting to expose people who have effectively been hiding in plain sight for the past few years. I don't think it was really a secret that Russell Brand had controversial and quite misogynist opinions. Um, The fact was that we just allowed these to be treated as funny. Um, And it's only now that we're really realising that it was never a joke. I do wonder, though, how much these big media exposés actually help to reduce sexual violence. I mean, certainly it's important that if Brand did commit these offences, which obviously we should say that he denies, that is these exposés this expose is going to help bring him him to justice but do we actually see a big societal change about how people view women and how people view sexual violence i'm not sure whether you could extend it that far but i think it definitely gives people greater confidence to speak up as i say brand had effectively been hiding in plain sight in the comedy industry and lots of his colleagues have recently come out to say that they know of lots of other people who've been practicing similar behavior. And I suppose the hope is that if this police investigation proves to be successful, people will know that their objections will not be groundless. They'll have somewhere to go. 
um and hopefully you know people will start to have a little bit more agency yeah i mean i think it is quite telling of the popularity still of people like andrew tate these figures who operate again on these non mainstream stream platforms how is the media as a whole supposed to deal with these kind of people do you think that the media should the mainstream media as it were should be engaging with these kind of platforms that promote these subcultures i would i'd have to say not and i'm quite concerned by what we see as you say in the kind of russell's uh, russell brand's new approach that he's going to get followers those who believe in, in what he says to pay this annual subscription to him it's becoming more and more commonplace that exactly as you suggest the media is now being taken over by people who are effectively independent and albeit we can see why that has to be protected and allowed it's concerning to see that experts and people who know what they're talking about and will genuinely forward public discourse are being kept really to the sidelines whilst people like tate like brand like so many others so many that it's not worth enumerating all of them are continuing to thrive and being rendered extremely rich actually in the pursuit of doing this such that they're setting an awful example for other people to go out express some some shock jockey remarks and ideas and and similarly profit from what is becoming an even more dire media kind of i suppose global media milieu yeah i suppose what's also concerning is that the more you marginalize these radical thinkers to sort of offbeat media channels the more you enforce a sort of echo chamber thinking where they'll only be hearing each other's ideas you're unlikely to skip from watching russell brand on rumble to catching up with bbc news which supposedly it acts in the interests of parity um so i don't know whether maybe our move towards cancelling people is just going to exacerbate the polarization that already exists yeah, there is definitely a worry that cancel culture is perhaps the victim of its own success in a way that these people who are cancelled kind of assume a figure of martyrdom, um, of kind of dying for their cause, which only, you know, ranks them higher in the eyes of their fans. Uh, and that by kind of pushing these people to one side, we create these really fertile grounds for conspiracy theories for alt-right populist views um and so i suppose my concern is that cancel culture doesn't help remedy the problem it's instead a really easy way of kind of presenting ourselves as being against someone and what they stand for in a way that is easy for everyone else to see that that's what we're doing but not actually unrooting the kind of problematic content that's there I suppose in a way you're almost preaching to the converted as well, because I think it's unlikely that this story is going to change anyone's opinion about how abhorrent his actions were. Um, but the fact is that he still maintains this fan base who are complicit in that. Um, and so their ideas will continue whether or not he's cancelled by the mainstream media. And I think that brings up a concerning question for me also, which is, at what point would followers of such people turn away? Have we lost kind of belief in a, in a shared system of morals to the point that we will listen to absolutely anyone who's espousing our values, even if we know them to be quite an abhorrent person or to have, at least to have done abhorrent things, as has been alleged in this case? And so as you've 
just said, Alex, these um, accusations are obviously alleged. And what we're seeing is that Russell Brand is in many ways already being tried by the media. And some people have concerns that this conflicts with kind of the legal principle of presumption of innocence. So I suppose my question is, is trial by media fair? And does the presumption of innocence apply to how we deal with people in the media? Yeah, I think it's interesting. It's sort of putting me in mind of the recent Lucy Letby case and the trial in the media that ensued after that. Um, and I think the danger there is that you lean into the sensationalization of the story and the inherent evil that these characters have. But actually, I don't think that's the most important aspect of the case. I don't think that you can say that anybody is inherently evil in the first place. And actually, what we should be examining is how this was allowed to happen. How was Lucy Letby able to operate in the NHS? How was Russell Brand able to be a prominent feature of very mainstream outlets, news media? And I think those kind of questions are exactly what we find established in, in a genuine trial, for example, a genuine court. My concern with the media is that it's so simple to read an article that takes three or four minutes to get through, form an opinion, go onto Twitter, and then express what you believe. And in this case, in fact, there have been some kind of more serious incidents of uh, interference, in this case, concerningly, on the part of the government, uh, of whom uh, a select committee leader has written to Rumble, a platform on which Russell Brand produces content in order to ask that he be demonetized on it. Now, one can understand exactly the motivations behind that and why that letter was written. However, in this country where we believe people are innocent until proven guilty, it seems to me that that sets an extremely worrying precedent that as soon as sufficiently serious allegations are made against you through sheer concern, perhaps for the public good, but it doesn't seem philosophically justified, you can have your revenue streams cut off by government interference. And I think that in particular should be a cause for concern amongst amongst some of us. I mean, I think that what we've seen in the media, especially around cases like this, is just more and more very, very binary thinking. And so I suppose if there's one thing that we can take from this, it's that we do need media that enables nuanced debate, debate from both sides that allows people to hold maybe two things in mind at the same time and to encourage people to engage with the stories that they consume, just as perhaps people have been consuming brands' conspiracy theories, um, to engage with that and to form opinions that are influenced by both sides of the debate. Oh, I think Jazz has raised a really fundamental point there that you can sort of track across all three of these stories the dangers that arise when you look at any issue in too binary a way. No complex issue in the modern world can be reduced to two binary counterparts. And actually, the issues involved are often much more nuanced, require much more reasoned thinking, uh, which is something that we really want to promote at this podcast. So thank you for your contributions. Um, I think three viewpoint writers could probably talk about controversial issues all day, uh, particularly when it means escaping the fourth floor of the library for a while. But I think we're going to have to wrap it up there. Um, hopefully I, our ideas have given you some food for thought. We'd really love to hear your feedback. And if you would like to point out anything that we've missed or any thoughts that you might have, 
please drop us a message at podcast at the saint.scot. We'd really love to hear from you. Uh, but for now, that's it from Discourse. You have been listening to Discourse by the Saint. Please do join us next time or email to get involved. This production was produced and edited by Natalie Olifson and featured guest speakers Alex Beckett and Jasmine Sykes. It was hosted by me, Rosie Miller.